Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Last week, we talked about spirit phenomena in the Bible. So why shouldn't we just go ahead and continue talking about the spiritual world? I mean, how much can we actually get from the Bible itself? And how much do we learn just by looking at the cultural context around the Bible? And how much of it is us just guessing or at least realizing the assumptions we bring to the Bible? So today, we are going to listen in on a conversation between Nicholas Shazer, Yeshaya Gruber, and Pinhas Shear. They are all on our IBC faculty. The conversation starts with the exploration about the divine council. What is it? Who's on it? But then we're going to move a little bit more into monotheism. What is monotheism? Where did it come from? Can we say the Israelites were monotheists? You can find more on all of these subjects in the newly released IBC course called The Powers of the Divine Realm, in which all of our faculty discuss all kinds of things related to the spiritual world. But in this podcast episode, we are going to start with a general definition. What is the divine council? Who or what belongs to it? So the, um, the divine council is essentially a, a fancy term for God's heavenly entourage. So um, I think the most important thing to understand about this topic first is another scholarly fancy word called henotheism. And uh, what that is, is the, the, it's a belief system. So oftentimes, um, you know, modern day Jews or Christians will come to the Bible and assume that the theology of it is that it's monotheistic, that it promotes something called monotheism, which just means that there's one God that exists in the universe. Um, but as you read more closely, particularly in the Tanakh and Israel's scriptures, and certainly even into the New Testament and beyond into the rabbinic literature, there's, um, it's not an understanding of monotheism in the sense that only one God exists in the universe. Rather, it's this idea of what's called henotheism. Um, so it's, it's this idea of the fact that actually many gods exist in the universe or in the heavenly realm, but the Israelites only worship one God. And that is the God of Israel. And the God of Israel is superior to every other God. And so that's the theology that's reflected in the text. So what that means is these other gods exist, but God sort of sits at the, the God of Israel sits at the top of a kind of a hierarchy, a divine hierarchy. And so God convenes a divine council often we see in scripture in heaven to discuss certain things going on on earth with these lesser deities or these lesser gods who are inferior to the God of Israel. And just a nice way of getting into the topic, 
is by looking at Psalm 82.1, which uh, Michael Heiser likes to point to. But Michael Heiser is, of course, one of the preeminent uh, promoters of the idea of a divine council of, as a way of understanding what's going on in the supernatural as described in the Hebrew Bible or in the Near East generally. So Psalm 82.1 says, God, which in Hebrew is Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council, which is Ba'adat El, in the midst of the gods, which is again Elohim, he holds judgment. It's actually a kind of confusing verse because it says Elohim has taken his place in the mm -hmm. midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. What, what could that possibly mean? Well, Heiser's take on this, we see in a very concise form below, and he's written a lot of books and articles on this topic. But he says, quote, the term divine council is used by Hebrew and Semitic scholars to refer to the heavenly host, the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. All ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council. The divine council of Israelite religion, known primarily through the Psalms, was distinct in important ways. Now, some people argue with him. There are also many different versions of the Divine Council, many different analysts, many different ways of approaching it. I would agree with, with Michael Heiser here, certainly, that the Divine Council, the heavenly host, this idea of a, a pantheon of, of divine beings, um, again, that may seem strange to Bible readers, um, but what I think it's important to underscore is that um, we're not talking about polytheism here. So we might as well just go through all the theisms and, and define them. But monotheism being the idea that only one God exists, okay, that is not the view of the Bible, of Israel's, uh, ancient Israel's authors. Um, they are henotheists. Many gods exist, but our God is the best. That's essentially the view of the ancient Israelite. And then there's polytheists, which is essentially Israel's neighbors. Um, so, for example, the Babylonians worship many gods. They had Marduk, their chief deity, at the top of the pantheon. But they also prayed to, interacted with, sacrificed to, and worshipped all sorts of other gods. That's why we call the Babylonians polytheists, as in many gods. Um, not only a belief in many gods, but an adherence and a worship of many gods. Uh, that is not what's going on with the divine council in the Hebrew Bible. In Israel's scriptures, we again, the only deity who's worshipped, the only truly most high superior god, is the God of Israel. In fact, we get that term El Elyon, God Most High, consistently throughout Scripture. Um, many Bible readers in English will, will know that, will recognize that, Most High. Even in the New Testament, um, when uh, demons uh, address Jesus, they call him the Son of the Most High God. Well, if there were only one God in the universe, you couldn't have a Most High God. Uh, what, that, what that term means is God is at the top of that pantheon that Heiser is referring to. I think a lot of this conversation makes sense. But if I were honest, I'd say it tripped me up a bit when I was first learning this, when I was studying ancient cultures, because we always talk about the Israelites worshiping one God. And then you read things like Psalm 82 and things seem a little tricky or disjointed if you're reading carefully. Nick just said that Israel's authors of the biblical text were not monotheists. This begs the question, where do we even get the name monotheism from? 
Lucky for us, Pinhas Shear has dug into the terminology to find out where the term and the idea of monotheism came from. Sure enough, it comes from Oxford. And, and so uh, I'm sure some outstanding chaps in the room came up with this idea of monotheism. And they <laughs> made the definition. And the definition says belief in one God and the ex- at the exclusion of beliefs in other gods. And that's what they defined the religion of Israel to be, which many people are now kind of backpedaling on and saying, wait a minute, that, that has been the prevailing attitude of many scholars for so long, but that's not really what we see in the Bible if we're really going to read it for what it is. And verses like this and many others you can throw in and say, wait a minute, there's something more going on. No, henotheistic idea is that, yes, there's one supreme deity, but other gods also exist and they're in the mix and they're part of it. It doesn't mean we worship them. And so the the definition of monotheism and representing, let's say, Jewish way of life as monotheism actually has been a disservice because I think it's been very inaccurately defined. So uh, there's it's very hard to find what I call true monotheism, sort of say. There's only one God and, and the others, we just say they don't even aren't, they're not, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I think most cultures in Mediterranean and, and in the ancient Near East, did believe in multiplicity of deities, and I recognize the deities of other nations too. And you can see this in Jewish literature all throughout, whether we talk about ancient or or later, uh, there's that recognition. doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them and worship them, but, but I am going to say, yes, these other nations have other gods. And so the, this is exactly the human type of language that we see that surfaces in the scriptures that talks about God and gods and deities kind of all being interrelated. And I think what you highlight there with the most high God is a very vivid example for most people to say, how can you be most high if there's nobody else that's high? Some of these ideas are talked about in greater depth in Nicholas's course on Psalms or Yeshaya's course on the name of God or on the roundtable talk with Michael Heiser himself. I will add links to all of these in the show notes, and you can take those courses and have them contribute to Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish context, which is a total bonus for simply chasing down interesting subjects anyway. I think we need to look at another biblical example. And since we just talked on this podcast about what the Septuagint is, let's listen to how Nicholas Shazer talks about Isaiah 65, 3, using both the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Greek Septuagint text. Now, if you've taken Nick's classes, you know how he can make every single word in the manuscript absolutely fascinating. And this is no different. What I did is I, I took a look at um, the Hebrew version of Isaiah 65.3, and then I also have the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek version. And I, I just thought we could compare these to show this idea, particularly in Greek, the idea of a demon or a daimon is a calc word. It's a kind of a, it's an alternative title for another person's god or gods. And uh, this comes through in the translation, the Greek translation of Isaiah 65. So the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text says, talks about Israel as the people who provoke me before my face continually, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on the tiles. The word for tile there is livana, which could also mean bricks. It's a little bit uncertain as to what exactly that means, but it's probably a reference to some sort of altar that is uh, sacrificing to to other gods. Well, it's interesting that Isaiah 65 in the Greek 
adds a bit and it adds the word demons. So it says that Israel is this people who provoke me, before me continually, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on the tile. So it's the exact same as the Hebrew. And then the Greek says uh, that they sacrifice, uh, they burn incense on the tiles to demons, daimonios. And so uh, that it's just trying to underscore what the Hebrew kind of does implicitly. And that is to to say what's happening here is a sacrifice or a worship of other gods that is not the God of Israel. Now, there's another interesting thing here that the Greek adds. So burning incense to demons, and then it says who are not. In Greek, that's uk estin. And in some English translations of the Septuagint, you'll get the, they sacrifice, they burn incense on the tiles to the demons who do not exist. And so then that brings us back into this monotheistic idea that, okay, so other gods don't really exist, but rather the only God that exists in the universe is the God of Israel. Well, the problem is, is that that's not quite what the Greek says. The Greek just says, uk estin, are not, okay? And so what we'd have to figure out is, okay, well, they're just sacrificing to, to like non-entities or these demons don't exist? I don't understand. Well, the, the best way to, to do this is to look around for that phrase, uk estin, elsewhere in Isaiah, and what Isaiah does is use that phrase all the time. And it doesn't denote the non-existence of something or the non-existence of other gods, but rather, uh, how do I put this? The, um, the lack of, of quality in comparison to the God of Israel. That the God of Israel is superior to all of these other gods who the Greek text calls demons, because that's just another name for a foreign god. So let's look at this. This is earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah 45. And this language comes up really throughout Deutero-Isaiah, that, that, that is Isaiah 40 through 55. Here's what Isaiah 45 says. God speaking, I'm the Lord God, and there is none beside me. Uk estin. I am the Lord God, and there is no other. Okay, so on, on a surface reading, that language sounds like a declaration of monotheism. That is... Um, okay, I'm the Lord God, says the God of Israel, and there are no other gods in existence besides me. So that's probably what many uh, listeners today have referred to in this thought that there actually is the Bible says that there's only one God, right? There's the God of Israel and there is no other, simple as that. But uk estin, that phrase, again, it doesn't mean that there's no other in existence. That is a phrase that means there's no other that's as good or as superior as, as I am. Um, so how do we know this? Well, we look around in Isaiah and we look for that term elsewhere and we get it in Isaiah 47, 10 with reference to Babylon, okay, that, that is the nation of Babylon. And so this is Isaiah speaking about Babylon and their wickedness. And here's what it says in Isaiah 47, 10, being confident in your wickedness, you Babylon, you said what I am and there is no other the exact same language that God uses of God's self. And then Isaiah repeats, you said, Babylon, in your heart, I am, and there is no other. Uk estin hetera. So it's the same language as God uses up in Isaiah 45 and elsewhere. And so what does that mean? When, when Babylon says, I am, and there is no other, Babylon certainly is not saying that there's no other nation state than Babylon. It's not saying that the only, the only culture or group of people in the world is Babylon. That makes no sense. It's not saying that these other places don't exist. It's Babylon saying how great Babylon is in its own eyes. I am, 
and there is no other as good as, as me. That's what Babylon is saying here in Isaiah 47. So that's exactly what God is saying too. Not that other gods don't exist, but there is no other who can even approach me in quality, in superiority. It's comparative. But it's not a declaration of non-existence. It's actually the opposite. It's a declaration of the existence of these other gods, and it's highlighting God's greatness over against them. I think these are good examples of how the Israelite text asserts that God is greater than any other gods. But what about looking for any kind of recognition that other gods create problems or are interacting with the world? Is that in the Bible, or is it simply that the gods other people worship are actually non-entities that we really should just ignore? The Bible is pretty clear that that other gods are can be a problem for God, for the God of Israel, the, the most high God, and that God needs to exert effort sometimes to remind these lesser deities of God's superiority. So for, for instance, this is a very easy verse to remember. This is Exodus 12, 12. And God says to the Israelites that um, the point of, of me breaking you out of Egypt was that I was able to execute judgment on Egypt's gods. And so God is going is going back and forth with these other gods in this kind of a, a fight. So every plague that God sends, it's also a shot at Egypt's gods, not just the people, but also the gods. I have a, an article on this. Uh, it's called Blinding the Eye of Egypt. And uh, in the article, what I, what I do is I talk about the plague of locusts. And often in English translations, it says there's so many locusts and they cover the whole face of the earth. But that's actually not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says that they cover the eye of the land of Egypt. And so what on earth is that? Well, the reason that most English translations gloss that with the face of the earth is because most English translators don't know what that's about either. And they want to make the English more palatable and understandable for English readers. The problem is when you do that, you, you miss something really important. What's the eye of the land of Egypt? It's the sun. Um, in ancient Egyptian theology, so Ra, the sun god, is one of the chief deities of Egypt. And the idea was that the sun was the eye of Ra. And, and, and Ra could look over Ra's creation of, of Egypt through that eye. And so when the, when the Hebrew text says that it covered the eye of Egypt, that's a shot at Ra. That's the God of Israel blinding Egypt's gods so that they can't see what's going on. Just as the Egyptians, you know, grope in darkness blind on earth, so too God blinds the Egyptian gods. So the fact that they're of no consequence, I mean, they are of consequence because God's fighting against them. And if they don't exist or they're so useless that they may as well not exist, then God's fighting against nothing, which really makes God's claims to superiority. If there is nothing to be superior over, um, these are strange claims. Um, so uh, I would say that, that the monotheistic view in this sense then is actually going against what the Bible is trying to convey. There's a battle that's going on all the time. In the Hebrew Bible, and, and you see this in the Torah, you see this in the prophets all the time, and the battle is for for the loyalty and the hearts of the people, okay, always. And and God is always saying, I'm a jealous God, right? You know, how many times we heard that? Now, why, why is he jealous? If these gods are not gods, if they're nothing, if they don't mean anything, you know, I, I, then why should I be jealous? Why should I care? And the fact is that, no, my people are going and burning incense to these 
beings, through these supernatural beings that did not take him out of Egypt. They did not walk you through the wilderness. They did not give you manna. They did not do anything for you. These are the gods that you have not known, and they have not known you. They're strangers. They're foreigners. They're nobodies to you. But you are treating them as if they have done all these things for you, as if they have opened the Red Sea for you, for you to walk through the dry land. They did not take you out of Egypt. So this, the language, the covenantal language, God has a relationship with Israel. And that relationship is vibrant and full. There's a back and forth all the time. And so the foundation of his relationship is that, hey, we have history together. I've done these things for you. You have responded to me. But now you're going to the side and looking after somebody else. What are you doing? These these deities, these gods, these supernatural beings, they didn't do this for you. And so there's always that jealousy, so to say, that's going on. And the prophets are very good about pointing that out. But even the language of the Torah speaks constantly, you know, do not, you shall have no other gods besides me. I mean, come on, let's just go to the foundational uh, statement of, of faith for Jews and for Christians as well, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow to them. You should not worship them. You should not do all these different things. You should not treat them the way you should treat me. Why? Because the commandments begin, Ani Adonai I am the Lord your God who, you know, brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have a relationship with you. I am your husband. You should have a relationship with me. You shall not have anybody else besides me. Don't even look at these other ones. I am a relationship with you. It's a language of love. It's a language of covenant. It's a language almost like a marital relationship, which is what the prophets always corrected to. And so I am looking at the Hebrew Bible and I'm like, oh yeah, these, these other beings, they do matter because otherwise God would not be grieved and he would not be so concerned. But yet we have commandment upon commandment, you know, uh, one consolation against another. All these prophets are saying, return. Return to your God. Stop worshiping these other beings that haven't done anything for you. And and so, yeah, I think, Nick, you're onto it. There, there are of consequence. Uh, they are significant because so much of the language in the Bible speaks about this issue and this matter. so thrilled you joined me today. It is a wonderful exercise to be able to come together to question the assumptions we have about the Bible and to read the biblical text carefully. You can find out so much more by looking at some of the IBC courses that I am going to link for you down in the show notes of this episode. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. <laughs>